0: Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bails from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I'd like to start out tonight by asking a question. Have you ever been asked by a loved one, do you love me? This could be a spouse, a friend. I think it works better as a spouse if you're thinking of that. But do you love me? I think we would all say, well, of course, yes. Although many many husbands right now might be rolling their eyes, like I hear all this, all all this too much. But do you love me? Of course, I think we would say yes. There's that's wonderful. Marriage is a wonderful thing. But then I would ask another question: This loved one that you have in your mind, is there anything that would happen that would make you lose it? That would make you change? where you would no longer want to be with that person. And marriage, I think, at the top of the list would be unfaithfulness. Because imagine if your spouse, if your boyfriend, if your fiancé cheated on you and did it openly and repeatedly. Could you still have love in your heart for this person? Or put another way, could you have an unconditional love? I don't bring this up so we would question our marriage and our love for each other. I don't even bring this up to talk about whether or not divorce is an option. None of that, I'm not talking about that. I bring this up because this is what our passage today is about. It's about the love of a husband to an unfaithful wife. A love that is unconditional, that is unexplained. So to provide some context to our passage, because when you just read it, As often can be in in prophecy in the Old Testament, it seems strange. What's going on here? Well, in chapter 1 of Hosea, and I'm going to read the first few verses to provide the context. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, gotta love those names, king of Israel, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God." After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's the first chapter of this book. So what we see here is a prophet of Israel being called to take an unfaithful wife to illustrate what's going on in Israel at this time. To illustrate the relationship that God's people have with him. Now, in time, for time's sake, I can't read it all, but chapter 2 in the first 13 verses goes through a list of the sins that Gomer and Israel, because right now they're one thing. Gomer represents Israel. And so throughout the passage, there's this references to her, to she, this is Gomer and Israel. But Gomer is this unfaithful wife who Hosea takes, and then in chapter 2, we read a combined account of her and Israel's sin. Unfaithfulness in going after other gods, serving Baal, serving God in an unwholesome and unloving way. The first 13 verses of chapter 2 are astonishing in what they represent. You'd almost think God's people were being characterized as Sodom and Gomorrah here. The language is just that intense. That leads up to verse 13 of chapter 2. The verse that precedes our passage says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. It ends with this forgetting. It ends with her not having anything to do with her husband. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and think, wow, this is is terrible. And it is. To think of the, the people of God doing this. But people of God, this is us. This is what we are without Christ as our Savior. We shouldn't so look back at them and think we're so much better because without God's grace, we aren't. Even in our own Christian life, how often do we forget God? How often are we unfaithful? And so we read, when we read this, I want us to see that this is us. We are Gomer. We are Israel. We do go after other gods. Maybe not Baal. But what about the God of our own entertainment? Our own time that we spend? Our own devotional life? very easy to have things come between us and God. And so I think we can even see, as we are Christians, we are saved, but I think we can see that we do forget God. We can sympathize, even with Gomer. So verse 13 ends, that she forgot him. And then we come to verse 14, to our passage, and it starts with, therefore. Now what was just said was, she forgot me. Therefore, we would expect I will forget her, judge her, and it would be just. But that's not what we see. The passage completely turns and it's reversed. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. What? Why? What's the reason? Why would God do this? Why would he stop and allure this unfaithful wife who cheated on him? Why would he be faithful to Israel? The answer is that he is a faithful God. The answer is that he is faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. That he would be their God, and they would be his people. That he would even keep both ends of the covenant, even when the people forsook him. This is what is all underlying this passage, because there is no intrinsic value to us or even to Israel that would make God allure her again. And so we see here that God's faithfulness is expressed through exodus, engagement, and establishment. And we'll unpack that, but that's what this passage is about, God's faithfulness expressed through exodus, engagement, and establishment. So first, God's faithfulness by exodus. Verse 14 says that God will lure her and bring her to the wilderness. And this wilderness language makes us think back to the Exodus, to the first Exodus when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. Now a very common theme throughout the whole Old Testament is Exodus, a second Exodus. The people would be unfaithful, they would be exiled, but they would experience another Exodus, another act of redemption. And this is what this language is bringing up, that God would bring her to the wilderness. This wilderness then, it's not always seen as a good thing in Scripture, but often it's depicted as as almost a a honeymoon-type period, a time when God was with his people in the wilderness and they drew closer to him and he covenanted with them. And what I found so interesting is that that is where the church is right now. This passage Is speaking ultimately about the church. If you remember in in history, Israel was exiled. The northern kingdom was exiled and never seemingly came back. The southern kingdom was exiled and was brought back, but it, it never seemed to live up to the full expression of what this prophecy says. And that's because we are in that time. This allurement is the church. God bringing his people to the wilderness to allure her is us. How amazing it is to be able to look back on the pages of Scripture where we so often just think this is the Old Testament, this is what happened then, but to see this is God working even in our lives. This theme of Exodus and what it really represents is a redemption from sin. In the first Exodus, Israel was enslaved to Egypt and brought out to God. What this is picturing is our enslavement to sin and being brought to him. That's the full meaning of what Hosea is talking about here. And this Exodus theme is continued in verse 15. It says, There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. The valley of Achor in the first Exodus was a valley in which the people had to pass through to get into the land of Egypt, into the promised land. And as they were passing through this valley, Achan, an Israelite, committed a sin against God. And the whole people was punished because of this. Ultimately, they couldn't, they couldn't get through this until Achan was executed because of the gravity of his sin. And then Achor was, that valley was named Achor, which means trouble in Hebrew. So this valley that. The initial exodus went through, which was a Valley of Trouble, will become a doorway of hope. This second exodus that we are going through, even right now, is an assured one. It's a better one. We go into the promised land with hope. Practically, God bringing us to the wilderness shows us several things. One, it shows that we will always find mercy with God without needing to minimize our sin. If you read the first 13 verses of this chapter, God does not minimize the people's sin or Gomer's sin, and yet he brings them to the wilderness. He is their God again. It's very easy for us to think, how can we find forgiveness when we are that wicked? Well, there is still exodus. There is still redemption for us, even in the gravest of our sins. The worst sins that we could think of, we find Exodus through. The second point we can learn from this is that we will be brought to the wilderness to draw near to God. Now, I know I said the wilderness is depicted as a honeymoon period, and and it is, but the wilderness is still the wilderness. It's a barren place. It's not a nice place to be. Who would want to be in the wilderness? Well, we learn that's, it, it is in the wilderness that God comes to us. In our own life, in the lives of the, the whole people of Israel, God drew near to them in the wilderness. When you experience trials, when you experience hardships, God draws near to us through that. If you look at Israel's history, you would think, "This, how could they be a blessed people? Well, the blessing is that them being brought out to the wilderness is actually a good thing. Because their future security is with God in heaven. So this wilderness, this exodus, results in a new marriage in the wilderness. Which is our second point. God's faithfulness by engagement. Engagement there, I'm thinking of like a wedding. Like a fiancé. Starting in verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Master, it's sometimes translated as Baal. You will call me my husband. God's faithfulness is expressed through remarriage in the wilderness. This passage is full of reversals. The whole thing. Now you don't need to turn there, I just want to read these to illustrate how many reversals take place here. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Israel was to be stripped and killed in the wilderness by thirst. But in verse 14, the wilderness is where the the Lord will speak lovingly to her. In verse 4, the Lord rejects Gomer's children. But in verse 23, he takes them as his own. In verse 12, the beasts of the field devour. But in verse 18, the Lord covenants with the beasts of the field, so she is secure. In verse 9, the Lord will take back grain and wine. But in verse 22, it is supplied again. Reversals. All the judgments that happen to this unfaithful people are reversed. God is taking back his wife, his spouse. The Christian life is a life of reversals. It's a life of what we once were to what we now are. Being taken from enslavement to utter freedom with God. It's reversals. This is what's happening even here. So what exactly is these days? Throughout the passage there is, in that day, in that day. Well, I already said that. It's the church, and, and it is. The restoration, this is, this is a quote from John Kelvin. The restoration spoken of here is to such an extent that it reaches out to the kingdom of Christ. We then see that God's favor, of which the prophet now speaks, is not restricted to a short time or to a few years But extends to Christ's kingdom and is what we have in common with the ancient people. How how amazing. This is thousands of years, hundreds of years. And this passage is being fulfilled. There were partial fulfillments, certainly, but this passage is being fulfilled even now. Verses 19 through 20 continue. I will betroth her. Why betrothal? Why is it that term? There are two stages to Jewish marriage. One was the betrothal period, and one was the marriage in its fullness. Well, legally, a betrothal was a marriage. You know, I use the term engagement. It's really not quite accurate because a betrothal is legally binding a marriage. It's just without the full expression of that. There's a period of delay. There's a period of waiting. I think that's a pretty apt description of where the church is now. Legally married, yet waiting for the final fulfillment of that. Waiting for that marriage feast that will come when Christ comes. Betrothal also means something else here. The fact that it's betrothal and not just remarriage indicates that the sins of this woman, Israel, was so utterly forgotten that it's brand new. It's a betrothal. It's what you would first do If you were going to marry someone, everything has been forgotten. Just remember, though, all that had preceded in the first 13 verses. How astonishing is this? Because we are still given no real reason for why God does this or how God can do this. His faithfulness. So just, just hang on to that thought. Following the Lord's promise to remarry is a list of virtues that he will bring. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. They are what God brings to the marriage to make it work. They are what God brings because he himself is that. These are his attributes. This is what defines him. This is also what will define us. He is betrothing her to himself in faithfulness and love, mercy. This is what Gomer this is what Israel will become herself. This betrothal comes with rich blessings, which is expressed in the establishment in the land, which is our third point. Remember, God's faithfulness is expressed through Exodus, engagement, and now establishment. Verses 21 through 23 begin with a series of responses, going from the Lord responding to the heavens, who respond to the earth, who respond to grain, wine, and oil. What this is bringing to mind is agricultural blessings. God speaks to the heavens to rain. They rain on the earth, bringing forth grain, wine, oil, which comes to Jezreel. These are the blessings that God will bestow on his people. And it's using the current imagery of that day, these agricultural blessings which were necessary for life. God will provide for his spouse. He will provide for his church. These blessings shouldn't be seen merely as agricultural blessings. They, they, in the new heavens and new earth, will be. God does bless us agriculturally. But their their full meaning is, is much greater than that. It includes that, but it also includes all the blessings of the new promised land. This future day of Exodus is the time we find ourselves in now. This continues in verse 23 and names Jezreel. Now, earlier in the first chapter, we saw that Jezreel was a name given to Hosea's son as a, as a judgment, bringing forth a bloodshed that occurred at Jezreel, a location. But Jezreel in Hebrew means God sows. So, what was once a name of judgment is now a name of establishment and blessing. God will sow Israel in the land. God will make her fruitful. She will grow, multiply, and be blessed. Following that, we reach verse 23 and the whole climax of this passage. Hosea's children were Jezreel, and translating the Hebrew, they were Jezreel, no mercy, and not my people. Those were three children of Hosea. And now, in verse 23, we see that Jezreel will be sown in the land, no mercy will receive mercy, and not my people will be my people, and she will respond to God, you are my God. The reversal is complete. In in this time, in the church's own era, ultimately when Christ comes again, this is our cry. You are my God. You are our God. Paul actually quotes Hosea in Romans 9. He speaks of the Gentiles. He says, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God speaking about Gentiles, about us. We read this passage and we think, hey, I thought this was just about Israel. Well, it is. But it's about the full gathering in of Israel. Why did God exile his people? Well, yes, he did it as chastisement, so they would learn their sin. It was a, it was a type of punishment, yes. Yes. But he made his own people, not my people. He made them Gentiles. So that when he brought them all back again, he was bringing in the Gentiles themselves. This not my people, which was once just Israel, now the Gentiles is all brought in. The net that God cast to bring back Israel also brought back the nations with them. They are brought back in the way we all are brought back, through union with Christ. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, in speaking of the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Christ's blood that brings his people near, both Israel and the Gentiles. The full ramifications, the full significance of Hosea isn't seen until the New Testament. Not that it wasn't meaningful when it was written, but we are in the position to be able to see its full fulfillment To see it in light of all revelation and all scripture. To see what its grand significance is. That this second exodus isn't just for the Jews. It's amazing enough that God would bring back his own people. How much more amazing is it that he brings back everyone in this? This second exodus isn't just Israel coming from Egypt. This is bringing Egypt with them. All in Christ's blood and through him. How amazing that Hosea and Gomer and their children are playing out on a small scale the grand story of redemption. God is illustrating what he will do some hundreds of years later. It took that long to actually be fulfilled, but he did fulfill it, even in our own life. And this is amazing enough, and we could almost just stop there, but there is something else. Remember verse 14 and the therefore. Therefore, I will allure her. That can be there because something else happened behind the scenes. All that punishment through the first 13 verses happened, they just didn't happen for us. The names of Hosea's children were given. someone else to Jesus Hosea's children were named no mercy and Jesus received no mercy Hosea's children were named not my people and on the cross Jesus was so utterly forsaken he in essence heard you are not my son This is what happened to bring us back. This is what happened to bring Israel to God. This is how faithful God is. That he would express himself in that way. What Gomer and Israel did as a single entity deserved and needed punishment. It was Jesus that took it. So as we go out from here, let's go out in thanksgiving and praise. Let's go out being able to see God's working throughout history and how Jesus is the center of that and what he has done for us for the praise of his own glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed at your word. We are amazed at the riches that we find here. We are amazed at your faithfulness. You bring us through an exodus again. You establish us ultimately in a new creation. You engaged yourself to us. You marry your bride, the church, again. And in so doing, you will make us righteous and good. And yet we see what that costs. We praise you for this. We praise you for being faithful to your promises because we know we can't be faithful to ours. Let us go out in thanksgiving. Bring this to our minds as we live this week, this month, this year, as we live out our life. May we live in this faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.